So I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, here we go again. Here we go again. I think every one of us has heard that phrase more than once or twice. And it's usually associated with things that have already happened before that usually were not experiences we wanted to go through, right? Normally when people say, here we go again, it's typically in a negative sense, right? How many of us were told 15 days to stop the spread and we're looking at what's coming up in the fall and we're going, here we go again. I don't know about you, but that's one of the things that I find throughout life, lessons that are learned more than I would probably like to learn them when it comes to my walk with God. And I only realize sometimes halfway through the lesson, oh, here we go again. It's the same thing. I didn't learn my lesson the first time. And many things in life, they tend to be repeated. And we like to admit that we've learned and we've prospered and we've gotten advanced in, in those areas that we've struggled with only to have to learn the lesson once again. Only to have to go through a similar trial once again. And some of them may be, if you will, uh, self-provoked, if you will, right? We've, we've actually done something that has caused that circumstance to happen because we've done something the same way that we've done in the past. Which is unfortunate for many of us. We try to have different results, but we do the same thing, and we wonder why those things are just not working out for us. Well, this morning in Acts chapter 18, if you have your Bibles, we're going to see that Paul goes through something once again that he's already been through multiple times. You see, Paul himself gets accused once again for teaching about Christ and breaking the law, if you will. Paul has to go through a similar experience once again. We're going to be looking at two things specifically in this text. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 18, verses 12 through 22. Number one, the accusation of blasphemy, verses 12 through 17. And number two, devotion to the cause, verses 18 through 22. Let's start off with number one, the accusation of blasphemy, verses 12 through 17. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it to yourselves. For I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. Remember, Paul is seeing God do some amazing things here in Corinth. God had promised that he would be protected. Imagine Paul's thoughts when all of a sudden people gather together 
and they're about to accuse him once again. They're about to convict him of blasphemy and teaching something that they considered illegal. Now, I don't know about you, but I would possibly question, uh, God told me he was going to protect me. Is this what it looks like? Did God really mean that he was going to protect me? I thought I was going to have success here. And I'm about to go through another trial, literally, if you will. You see, Paul is faithfully teaching new converts the Word of God. And by the way, I just want to make sure that we make this clear. It's not Paul's, you know, five steps to better relationships or finding your purpose, etc. He's teaching people the Word of God. And he's connecting those truths to the Messiah. You see, Paul must have built quite the reputation in the community. As God had promised him that there would be many in that community that would come to saving faith. It's in this context that fresh accusations are made by the Jewish people in Corinth. That Paul was preaching a religion that was not to be tolerated under Roman, Roman rule because it was not pure Judaism. What's interesting here, though, is who these accusations were brought to. If you do some study, Gallia, who was the proconsul, ultimately he's a governor or magistrate, if you will, judging over the people that are entrusted to him in his province. Some quick facts on Gallio. Interestingly enough, his father was Seneca the Elder, who taught Emperor Nero. He was also one that was described to not be easily swayed by people's flattery. He was very well aware and alert when people came to him for judgment. Eventually it's said that Nero executed him and his brother Seneca, the younger. And in this context, Paul, is, as he's been preaching in Corinth, is brought before the judgment seat, the bema, if you will, to be judged over his teachings. The complaint was one of Paul violating Roman law by teaching outside the Jewish faith, which was accepted in the Roman rule. The Jews adamantly rejected Messiah, so they believed that this was a teaching outside of Judaism. Paul was about to say something to defend himself, and before he even gets to do so, Gallio saw right through their analysis and their false accusation. He saw right through their hypocrisy. It's very similar to the way that Paul, uh, Pilate originally saw Christ. Mind you, the blasphemy was much worse. The Jews were even more offended because Jesus said that he was the Messiah. Gallio dismisses the charges as null and void because to him, this was not a serious accusation or a wrongdoing or crime. This was a personal beef that the Jewish people had with Paul and that he was taking converts away from them. They were converting to Paul's sect, if you will. He's ultimately telling them to not waste his time in hearing this egregious accusation over semantics. He simply tossed them out of the courtroom, if you will. 
Now, this is what's great about Scripture. There are many lessons that we can learn from even these encounters that we read about in the Word of God. One of the lessons that we can learn is that people attack others many times because they're drawing attention away from themselves. It could be something that happens at work. Someone else gets the promotion. Someone else gets the attaboy. Someone else gets the praise. It could be in the community. This person got the reward, got the award for what their service was. And I was overlooked. It could even be in the family. As we get older, what tends to happen, I don't know if you've realized that this happens in homes, but sibling rivalries extend beyond the home when children grow up to be adults and the sibling rivalry still continues in many homes, where one sibling wants to outdo the other and there's a put down of somebody else simply so we are elevated. You see, people attack others that are drawing attention even in the church. Well, nobody thanked me. Nobody said how wonderful a job I did. They only thanked that person. I've been working harder than they have. I think one of the most hardest things, probably most frustrating things for me maybe, and, and I know I've been on this end where I, I get frustrated. I don't know if you've ever done this, but I know I have. You're working really hard, people are used to you doing certain things, you don't get a thank you, then that person that's never done anything, finally did something the first time, everybody notices, everybody says, thank you so much, and it almost crushes you. You see, many times the attack is one of how they're spreading dangerous ideas. That's what will happen with Paul here. In this case, breaking the law, teaching that Jesus was superior to the Judaic, Judaic Christian system, Judaic system, sorry. One of the most dangerous things for us is to believe someone's ulterior motives as genuine sometimes. Oh, they're just looking out for the safety of others. They really care that I'm aware of this person that they're warning me about. You see, the difficulty here is that there are people who genuinely warn us, and they do care, and they are correct about their assessment, and there are others that are doing so, so that we now turn the spotlight to them rather than the others. And it's hard to discern at times. We need to be careful. You see, Paul himself warned the church of dangerous people. He didn't have ulterior motives. He truly cared for the church of God. He, he warned the church that dangerous people were in their congregations. That was a genuine warning. I'm going to be really honest here. This is one of probably the hardest things for a pastor or any spiritual leader in the church. When they see someone struggling and they want to approach them and correct them and maybe help them see, hey, watch out, here's what's coming if you go down this path. And even if they try to correct a sin that may be hurting others in the church, they get met with hostility. 
or an accusation of judgment. That person in the church, they just want me to do something for them. That's why they're calling me out for this. Why don't they just point out this problem to so-and-so? They're worse than I am in this area. Instead of me, why can't they go after somebody else? And then the, the famous phrase that so many quote, they don't care about my personal happiness. Why don't they want me to be happy? Unfortunately, many churches today are flattering people rather than telling them the truth. We all have to check our motives when we communicate to those around us. We may start with the right motive, but it can very quickly shift to one of self-preservation, being viewed in high esteem by others, doing it for the money, you name it. We may start with a good reason, but there very well may be a real reason behind that good reason we started with. The one that's kind of deeper in our heart that we don't want to admit to ourselves and others. The one that's really, shall we say, narcissistic that we think everybody else is. It's very self-centered. Very much about me, not anyone else. The truth is all of us will have our motives questioned a time or two for why we do what we do. And I don't think we pause enough to be honest with ourselves and even ask God why we even do what we do for Him. You see, Proverbs says this in 21 verse 2, says this plainly, every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. We all assume that God is pleased with us more than the person next to us at church. We assume that we're doing it the right way compared to the rest. My parents may have screwed up at this parenting thing, but I'm doing it right, right? Many young families that believe that. My parents might have messed this up. Well, I'm going to show them. I'm going to do much better than they do. Those rules are just legalism. My progressive liberal friends make me feel so free that God loves me just as I am and He doesn't want me to change. Church, don't confuse legalism for holiness. There are a lot of people that confuse legalism for holiness. Our God's a holy God. He doesn't tolerate sin. Jesus came because of sin. Not because He wanted to make us happy. Although the greatest joy and happiness we can find is in Him anyways. Holiness is missing in the church today. We neglected, we've neglected to fight against sin because we've assumed experiential feelings are more valid than God's clearly revealed Word. What I feel is more important than what God's Word says, to summarize it. If it was about feelings... We would always want to have wonderful feelings every time we open the Word of God, but we don't, do we? Do you always have wonderful feelings when you open this Word? Do you always feel a passionate desire to hear from God every time you open this Word? No. Let's be honest, we don't. Yet what should we do? Open the Word. 
You see, we need to have better discernment when it comes to ourselves and when it comes to others. Be careful, church, and pay attention to flatterers. They're all around us. Those that only butter you up and they never call you out for anything. The fair-weather friends, they're all around. The world is filled with them. Which is one of the reasons why I find it absolutely strange and humorous at the same time that we go from encouraging people to vaccinate only to threaten them shortly after. So which is it? Are you happy for me? Or are you threatening me? So many people assume that they've built genuine friendships with those around them. But as soon as some hard truth has to be spoken, they part ways because there was nothing in that relationship to begin with. Look, if you can't speak truth to your friends, then you don't have a real friendship. You don't have a God-honoring friendship. If the friendship is built on just fun and flattery, that's not a real friendship. And this is the reason why so many parents that want to be buddies with their kids are getting it wrong. Your children need to know that you find God's Word valuable and that what they think is right or what you may think at times is right has to line up with what God's Word says because He gives us truth. Listen to what Scripture tells us about flattery. Proverbs 26, 28. A lying tongue hates those who are crushed by it. And a flattering mouth works ruin. Listen, it will eventually fall apart to the point of destruction if you simply lie and continually flatter others. None of us naturally loves to be corrected. It's not that we wake up in the morning and go, man, I want some correction this morning. Bring it on, lay it on me. Tell me where I'm wrong, everyone. I don't know too many Facebook posts first thing in the morning when someone says, I can't wait to be corrected today. None of us naturally loves to be corrected. Well, that's why verses like Proverbs 28, 23 should always be kept in mind. Listen to what the Word of God says. He who rebukes a man will find more favor afterward than he who flatters with the tongue. Listen, you need to stop looking for the temporary benefit of flattery. You need to look to the long-term success of rebuke. We're too short-sighted in our analysis when it comes to what we say to others. We don't realize the longer you flatter others, the more deception you're letting them live in to the point of falling into a similar trap yourself. You do realize that the more you flatter others, the more others will flatter you, right? You understand that? That's a biblical axiom. So imagine two people that are constantly flattering each other, living in an oblivious reality. That's what ends up in many relationships. Back here in the text in Acts chapter 18, Gallio saw through their hypocrisy. He knew that they were just trying to set up Paul here. And he wanted anything to do with it. He dismissed the case against Paul 
because he saw that this was a hypocritical stance by them. This causes the group of Greek men to get angry and take it out on the ruler of the synagogue, Sosthenes, possibly as a signal to the Jewish people to not waste Gallio's time with such nonsense. What's interesting is that this name pops up again in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Sosthenes, as a brother in Christ to Paul. More than likely implying that this man may have come to saving faith at some point. You see, Gallio didn't want to be bothered with the repercussions of such a pathetic attempt to frame Paul. So Paul continues ministering there in Corinth for quite some time. Number two, devotion to the cause. Verses 18 through 22. So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centria, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus, and when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. So another trial is overturned in Paul's favor. Albeit this time he didn't have the physical beatings or imprisonment that came with the previous experiences. And Paul goes about continuing ministry. He stays there some time in Corinth. But as time passes, Paul sets sail for Syria, which is about seven miles southeast of Corinth, with Aquila and Priscilla, remember the, the partners as tent makers, his business partners. And he cuts his hair in keeping a vow that he made before God. This vow that, God, that Paul had taken was one in which the hair was not to be cut during the duration of the vow, but cut at the end of the completion of that vow. It may very well be a vow to God for the protection he received in Corinth. And at the conclusion, Paul cut it off in thanksgiving in completion of his vow towards God. What's interesting is that some would argue that Paul is going back to the law here by vowing something before God. Remember, the Nazarite vow is something similar. Because his argument was that we're no longer under the law, but under grace, and all of those Jewish ceremonies were no longer required. Listen to what one commentator says about this. There are a great many folk who find fault with Paul because he made a vow. They say that this is the man who preached that we are not under the law, but we are under grace. And so he should not have made a vow. Anyone who says this about Paul is actually making a little law for Paul. Such folk are saying that Paul is to do things their way. Under grace, friend, if you want to make a vow, you can make it. If you do not want to make a vow, you don't have to. Paul didn't force anyone else to make a vow. 
In fact, he said emphatically that no one has to do that. But if Paul wants to make a vow, that is his business. That is the marvelous freedom that we have in the grace of God today. Listen, church, there's no sin in taking a vow before God. The sin is in not keeping the vow before God. You can absolutely vow something before God that no one else vows before God. At times there are things in our lives that God may convict us of personally to get rid of or step away from doing, and we should be aware of that and follow through. You see, some of us, we may be addicted to certain things, and the vow that we make before God is, I am going to withdraw from whatever this is for a time and dedicate that to you, Lord. And we commit that time to the Lord. There are many ways for us to fast, if you will. You can fast from social media, and I promise you there are definite benefits to that. You can fast from entertainment. There are benefits to that. You can take time away from the things that distract you from the things that are most important. You see, there are good things in our lives, but there are things that are even greater. There may be seasons of thanksgiving that we just want to give something back to God. And if we've committed that to Him, we need to follow through. Paul stays in Ephesus, but he can't stay too long because he needs to go back to Jerusalem, possibly to be back in time for Passover. Aquila and Priscilla stayed in Ephesus establishing their business and holding services more than likely in their home. Paul travels to meet up with the brethren in Jerusalem, and he finishes up in Antioch of Syria. One thing that's interesting to know, and I don't know if you've noticed this as we were reading this earlier, in verse 20 we see that Paul is asked to stay longer in Ephesus. But he pushes back on that and says, look, i got to get going to Jerusalem for what seems to be something that's important to him, as mentioned earlier, more than likely Passover. He reminds them, if given the chance, if God wills, I will come back and visit sometime in the future. Paul had a determination to go back to Jerusalem, and though we don't have the complete details, it's very helpful to see that there are sometimes some things that are more important to him than just staying there in Ephesus. There are times that we need to say no to good things for the more necessary things. There are so many things in our lives that truly matter, and I'm sure all of us would agree, you and I need to work a job to provide for our families. Those are necessities in life. We need to raise our children. We need to build relationships with others. We need to help those in need. All of those things truly matter. But sometimes there's something even more important that we neglect. And that's our relationship with Jesus Christ. We neglect in our desire to be with Him more frequently. Our our desire for Him and His glory. Imagine with me if we made Him the focus of our existence, we become better employees at our job. We'd be better at loving our spouse. We'd be better at seeing beyond the physical needs of others 
to the innerward parts where the heart meets. All the self-help material we consume pales in comparison to spending time enjoying God and His Word. And that's one of the big things that I really want to encourage all of us as a church is to take the Word of God as something more than just an instruction manual. Take them as the very words of God to you and me. Get to, want, get to know Christ by getting to know the Word of God. Because your version of Jesus will only match up as much as you know the Word of God. What we believe of Jesus is many times off because we don't know the Word of God very well. Which is why most of the world today, their definition of Jesus is a socialist hippie. That's out giving everybody hugs. Apparently nobody's read Revelation and him coming back on a white horse and slaying his enemies. Listen, church, I just want to conclude with this this morning. Is Christ most important? Is Christ most important? Now, I know you've heard this asked so many times. Is Christ the center of your life? Is that what you're living for? But I want you to take a look one more time. Is Christ most important? Did you think just by reading the Bible, you automatically will have all your problems go away? Look, if I just read my chapter today, it'll go better automatically. That's not how it works. Not at all. In fact, you may have an even more destructive day than you imagined. The only difference is you have the Word of God to strengthen you. You and I can get into a routine so much that God's Word means nothing to us. That the words of God aren't as precious as we first believed. How do I know that that's true? Let's be honest for a moment. We've all had relationships where we've started passionately in them, right? It's amazing. We, we built a connection with somebody, and for some reason after time, it just gets kind of stale. You kind of get used to those people. And then you know what we when we realize that we're missing out is when death is staring at us, and we have a reality check. Somebody passes away. And God reminds us once again of the things that matter most is eternity. Maybe Scripture has always brought a sense of foreignness to some of us. Maybe we've never understood the fascination that Paul had in teaching others the Word of God. Maybe we've prayed a prayer and thought it was all that was necessary for our growth in Christ. We had our ticket to heaven, I'm good, leave me alone, let me live my life the way I want. And unfortunately, that's most of Christianity in America today. The raise your hand, I see that hand, you're saved. Maybe the Holy Spirit's prompting more from us than we would like to admit. Maybe we've simply refused to submit and to surrender. Maybe we've been waiting for those around us to walk closer to God and we think that we're just going to, by default, take some of that from them. I'm going to wait for my spouse to get 
closer to God, and then maybe by default, we'll get closer as a family, and myself included. Maybe it's time to take a serious look at ourselves and realize the very things that are routine and mundane are the places that God still works. See, the problem for most Christians in America today is they're looking for the extravagant. They're looking for the amazing experience. And unfortunately, what they don't realize is God works in the very mundane moments of life. The everyday mundane moments is what, where God works. We may have flashes here and there, but it's in the everyday life that God is there. God still works, yet we're always looking for the extraordinary. Maybe we need to realize that we have ulterior motives for why we serve God at times. Maybe we serve God and others for reasons that we haven't even thought through ourselves. And they're not always holy. Maybe the reason we don't love the church of God as we ought to is because we don't love God as we ought to. You see, church Christ loves his bride even when the world mocks his bride. Does God correct his own? Yes, he does. But Christ loves his bride. The world ridicules the existence of the church. Yet the church is precious to him. Next time you think, here we go again, realize that there's a God that sees it all and is in control. Realize that there's a God who's well aware of what you and I are about to experience again. Maybe when it happens, you and I can join, join with Jonah in declaring in Jonah 2, 8 and 9 from the Amplified Version. Those who regard and follow worthless idols turn away from their living source of mercy and loving kindness. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I shall pay that which I have vowed. Salvation is from the Lord.